Hello, and welcome to Square and Circle. In this episode, I'm joined by Colonel Tim O'Sullivan, a post-KMV FA-50 with multiple assignments throughout force management to include the Army Staff and G-8, the Asymmetric Warfare Group, the Joint Staff G-8 Forces Division, United States Army Pacific Easter Pack, Combined Security Transition Command Afghanistan, the FA-50 Proponent Development Office, and the Mission Command Capability Development Integration Directorate. He had multiple overseas and combat tours, and his most recent FA-50 assignment was as the Chief of Force Management at USERPAC, with responsibility for the force structure, force integration, and force readiness. He currently is the Chief of Staff for HKDH-357 Force Management. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program are my own and my guests. They do not reflect the positions of the U.S. government, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Army, or any other organization. This content is for education and information purposes only. All right, sir. Hey, thanks for uh, being on the podcast. You know, I, I really appreciate your time and, and I look forward to our discussion on, on force management and where you see the functional area going, uh, as well as talking to you about development for our force managers, you know, specifically for our, our junior FA-50s. Um, I've hosted a few of these episodes with our senior FA-50s at the at the 05, uh, you know, currently at the at, during their KMB time. And, uh, you know, I'm curious to get some thoughts and perspectives at the 06 post KMB. So I'm really looking forward to this, sir. And, uh, you know, this should make for a great conversation. But uh, before we dive into these questions, you know, I'll turn it over to you for any opening comments. Okay, I'd just like to start off by saying I'm very glad to be here. Uh, This is a very important effort that I want to applaud you for taking on. I mean, I'm a big believer in the value of continuous improvement and self-development. It's sometimes challenging for force managers to do that, and it takes a lot of initiatives. Podcasts are a wonderful tool that I've personally used, and we'll discuss that kind of later in this. But I just, first of all, want to thank you for having this professional forum for people to share their different perspectives and experience and to be able to provide a a forum where people can listen and learn. Uh, So ready to go. Okay, all right. Awesome, sir. Hey, I know I really appreciate that. Um, so I guess, you know, the first question is, you know, everyone has a story, you know, kind of the the why behind, you know, why they became a, a force manager in FA-50. So, you know, just out of curiosity, sir, if you, could, you know, tell me, you know, why you became an FA-50 and kind of talk to me through about your first assignment as a force manager and what was that like? No, that's a great, a great question. So I'll start out to the why and So I'm a year group 97 officer. I was basic branched infantry. And for my year group, this was before the voluntary transfer incentive program, the VTIP, started. My year group was something called career field designated as a part of the majors promotion board. So it was a little bit, it was a little bit different back then. Uh, What happened is all the captains basically prior to the board had to submit their preference for functional areas. So I was a young uh, company commander in the 101st, having just returned from OIF-1. And as a part of that, we were transforming from the division to the modular force. And I know you've had some great discussions about that from some of the earlier guests. Uh, Mm -hmm. But as a part of that, we received some pretty big changes to the MTO. So I reviewed them, and then I sat down with kind of all the platoon sergeants, platoon leaders, and I went with my other companies in the in the brigade i had a weapons company so we all met and we went like line by line and we submitted all these uh recommended changes so we submitted all these changes up through our chain of command and then lo and behold a couple weeks later they came down the final mtos came down and they didn't uh they didn't accept any of those changes so about that time was when I was reading through the DA PAM to try to figure out what functioners to put in order. And as I'm reading through this, I'm like, oh, FA-50. These are the guys that and gals that are responsible for doing the MTOs. They really don't know what they're doing. Uh, <laughs> so I actually put that down as, as one of my choices. I didn't really think about it uh, at the time. So lo and behold, the promotion list for major comes out, and I'm all excited. And then I realized uh, that I was an FA-50. And at first I was like, FA what? Because uh, I didn't think I would be uh, career field designated to a functional area. But it really actually worked out well because I was actually in the Pentagon uh, in kind of a broadening assignment at the time. And I was able to talk with a bunch of uh, force managers right after. And I went to G3FM and I talked to one of the senior 06s, asked for an office call with them. And he said, hey, 
the army is is this big, it has this many resources. And if you want to make more brigade combat teams, you only have so many people and so much equipment and all the money in the world is not going to be able to bring us uh, a bunch of new equipment and a bunch of people right away. So the brigade combat teams are going to have to get smaller and you're going to have to lose some of those elements at the division headquarters. So uh, that kind of that kind of made me really think about it. And it was a great, a great transition for me uh, that uh, I was surprised by, but very glad that it happened. So that's kind of how I became, how I became an FA 50. So uh, I guess I'll talk about my first assignment uh, as kind of your part two to the question. So my first assignment was in uh, G8 force development in 2007 in a division that no longer is called FDO. And I was primarily responsible for doing equipment reset. And the big challenges for that, this is 2007, equipment was just starting to return from Iraq and Afghanistan after several years. And we had an army reset program that basically was refurbishing equipment, not new equipment, but used equipment, sent it to the army depots and trying to put it to kind of zero miles, zero hours. And this was a $17 billion program. We had to track aircraft, track vehicles, tactical vehicles, even small arms uh, were included that. And we had to execute uh, this funding, closely track it, and provide monthly reports to Congress. So it was really challenging because we were dependent on a lot of factors. One, getting the equipment back from CENTCOM, which never seemed to arrive on time. Two, have an Army Material Command get, get the depots in an increased capacity to deal with this massive amount of workload uh, and then get it back into the force as quickly as we could to support the next deployer. So it was a, it was a really exciting, interesting time that was definitely a team effort that uh, required a lot of work across, across the enterprise. And that's kind of what I learned. I think what I learned most about in that app, in that job is, you have to work as a force manager across the enterprise. So at HQDA, this was Army Material Command, Army Budget Office, G8 Harbor Divisions, G4 and others, because uh, no one person can do it. And I learned the importance of, of the civilians and, and how valuable they are. Uh, so that's kind of that's the initial thing. The one other thing I would learn that I think is kind of important for everybody, uh, as, as a young force manager, you're trying to get stuff done Sometimes it's hard to get the collaboration from those that aren't in your direct chain of command. So, so what I would do, and I've kind of found this to be useful throughout, is if you draft products and share them with people, it's kind of a forcing function for them to, to participate and give you feedback. So everybody's busy. Uh, they might not necessarily want to be a willing contributor, but if you give them a product they actually have to look at, they will certainly be happy to tell you that it's wrong. Or that it needs to improve. So, so I, I, I kind of learned that as, as a young, a really young FA-50, and I wasn't afraid to – I didn't have things to be perfect, but if I had a draft paper, slide, spreadsheet, I could share that with people, and it really kind of forced them to actually say this is – they'd agreed with it or not. Usually they didn't, but then they made it a better product. So those are kind of some initial things that I learned. Uh, yes, sir. Yeah, just to, you know, comment, I think, you know, spot on with, you know, the civilians, you know, you know, that institutional knowledge, you know, that that historical knowledge on those experiences, like, you know, without the without the civilians, right? Yeah, I'd be, you know, I'd be I'd be really struggling there. Um, I think what I really enjoy, what I really enjoy a lot about being a force manager is just the interaction with a lot of the different uh, uh, organizations that are out there, you know, whether on, on GFM talking to Forcecom and, and CENTCOM and HKDA or, you know, on the structure side where you're talking to um, all the different a ASCCs and CAC and HKDA, you know, if I wasn't a force manager, you know, I, as a, as a major, I, I wouldn't be exposed to that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have that, those experiences. Um, but so, sir, your, your first assignment was in the building and I know we'll, we'll get into this, you know, a little bit on, on your thoughts, but um, you know, did you think that your, your first assignment in the Pentagon was, you know, the, the right assignment for a brand new force manager or, you know, would, would you do things differently? Would you go to like an ASCC or, you know, was it the right assignment as a brand new 50 is what I'm asking, sir. Right. So, so I was in a very, very unique 
unique situation. So I came to the Pentagon as a part of a broadening opportunity program, uh, which was the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Office of Secretary of Defense interim program. So that, that interim program, uh, at the time, you went to Georgetown and did a one-year master's degree in policy management. Then you served a, a year on the, the Joint Staff or OSD. I was actually assigned to J-8 uh, Forces Division. And uh, it was actually the perf- being in J eight was the perfect place to kind of kind of get insights even before I came to fifty, and then I was subsequently assigned to G eight. So, so for me, it was a perfect kind of flow from kind of being in the operating force, then kind of getting at the strategic level, kind of in grad school, then to kind of getting to understand the joint the joint perspective as a really young young officer and then kind of going to the army staff. So for me, it was, it was great. Uh, we don't have the number of authorizations that we used to have in the Pentagon for, for majors. So if someone starts off there, uh, great. I would tell people not to stay there too long. Uh, if you stay for more than three years, you become kind of stale. Uh, but in a, in, I've come to realize I think Army Service Component Commands, theater armies where there's a lot going on is is probably the best place to actually start because at those assignments, you kind of get to see what HQDA is doing, uh, and then you get to see the impacts at the tactical level. So I think that's a really good medium, and you're also looking at working on three different areas. So most of them are kind of have a force structure, kind of force development side, then you've got an integration side, then you've got a readiness side. So I, I personally think that being at a theater army is probably the best place to start because you have a lot of diverse opportunities there. Uh, while when you're in the Pentagon, a lot of times people get whatever step they are, whatever kind of project they're working on, the aperture gets pretty narrow in the Pentagon with some mm-hmm. very specialization that can be awesome or it can be kind of not not so beneficial for things outside the Pentagon. So that's kind of my, my thoughts on uh, – initial assignments. You don't really have a whole lot of control of where you go initially, to be honest. Uh, so I don't think it's really worrying about that. It's kind of mapping out your career beyond that first assignment. Uh, yeah. Yes, sir. That's good. That's a good point. Um, yeah. When I was uh, going through the, you know, my first assignment for uh, force management, the VTIP, you know, we just had a pool of assignments and we're kind of just, you know, secluded to those assignments. Um, and there were mostly, uh, ASCCs, you know, be at the theater armies. Um, and I know, uh, you know, at that time, and I just, you know, I'm not sure now, but, you know, cause the, the philosophies can, can sway. Um, but at that time it was, you know, new force managers, you know, should, should go to the theater armies. And because of those, uh, you know, experiences and opportunities to learn, you know, force integration and generation and, you know, structure and readiness. And, and if you get exposed to all those different things, um, and, and then you leave your, your first assignment after all those experiences, like, you know, you could be real dangerous, right? Like, you you know, you'll be, you'll be trained, ready to go to be a, take a one of one. Yeah. Um, I mean, the one thing I have learned in my career is is no one person knows any of this stuff. It's always about phoning a friend. It's always about reaching out to those people that are involved in whatever process you're involved in and kind of clearly communicating with them uh, because you can open up how the Army runs or you can look at the schoolhouse slides and how things happen. But I would tell everybody before you do anything, just call the people that are responsible for the process and ask them, what the best way is to proceed forward uh, because sometimes it may be different than the uh, quote unquote book answer. So. <laughs> yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. There's the book answer and then there's like actual, you know, right way of, of doing things, you know, <laughs> how, how the thing is, you know, there's doctrine and then this is the, uh, this is how it's supposed to be yep. supposed to be done. Um, all right, sir. You know, I, I'd like to, you know, fast forward a little bit in time. I know we talked about your, um, you know, first assignment as a, as an FA 50, but I kind of, you know, Fast forward to your 06 KMB at, at USERPAC, and I was wondering, sir, if you could kind of talk me through, you know, what were, you know, what was that assignment like for you, and you know, what were some of the challenges that you had as, you know, as an 06 KMB, sir? No, I, I'd be really happy to talk about that. So I, I think, so I, I was fortunate in that I actually had had an 06 job at Mission Command seated prior to being 
the chief of FM at Usurpac. So I, I was a, I had a, a few years experience as an 06 already, which really kind of helped me uh, because the biggest challenge I think you face at, at the at the kernel level is is literally the scope and scale of all the different things that are going on. And at Usurpac, there's a lot of stuff going on. Uh, and as as a major and a lieutenant colonel, you're really kind of in this transition from kind of being the actual doer to all these things to leading a team that's actually producing this stuff. I think I think that that transition kind of occurs at the 05 KMB, but clearly at the 06 level, you cannot do the stuff. So at at USRAPAC, uh I really play. I really had four major roles that I had to kind of do simultaneously. So the first was I was a division chief. So in charge of the FM shop. So that's establishing priorities, submitting reports, making sure everything's making sure we're producing quality products to support the senior leader decisions. And another huge important part as a leader was recruiting, developing, sustaining a talented team. And that's not just uh, military officers, obviously you're, you're rating military officers, but it's also uh, your government civilians who are absolutely critical members of the team and your relationship with your government civilians can really kind of make or break in their productivity, make or break organization. So that's kind of the first hat. Uh, the second hat is serving as the USRAPAC senior representative for stuff. So at USRAPAC, I was, became the, the senior USRAPAC rep for the Army Campaign Plan Council of Colonels meetings. Uh, so I would sit in the Council of Colonels, and then my team would help set up the Army Sync meeting for our leadership. The total Army readiness review process, I would sit in the Council of Colonels and have our have all our leadership ready to engage at the at the higher levels for that. And then the Army Requirements Oversight Council and the Combined Arms uh, Center Commander's Modernization Forum. So for those, I was a use for PAC senior rep, so I had to make sure that I was prepared to represent use for PAC equities in those. The third one is being a staff integrator. So I just mentioned a bunch of forums. All the topics in those forums are not force management per se, but they require you bringing in other elements of the staff, whether it's the G5, the G4, the G8, uh, G357, different pieces of that. Uh, you have to, you actually, and I think this is true of most FM shops, you, you serve as a synchronizing function to help a seat, the commanding general accomplish their priorities in almost everything that involves HQDA. So our FM shop there was also kind of the chief of staff special action arm for projects. And we also had a theater army campaign plan that uh, I was a primary participant and kind of the backup chair for the, the use for PAC theater army campaign plan. So that's a third function. And then the fourth function is being the senior force manager in the Indo-Pacific. So I really want to emphasize this, the importance of this role because it's vital. Uh, it's something I think that all senior FA-50s that are colonels, whether, uh, whether they're in a position or not, should kind of, kind of care about the profession. Uh, it's something that your immediate chain of command might not place a high priority on, but we as force managers need to do it. So there was about 30 FA-50s throughout the Indo-Pacific at all our different uh, different locations. So we would have uh, a leadership development program that we do. We'd provide assistance to them. I offer to give uh, those counseling that weren't in my immediate chain of command. And then also representing all the FA-50s in the Indo-Pacific during the FA-50 Council of Colonels and other forums. So so those are kind of the big, uh, the big four roles. Uh, it was very challenging personally, but I had like an incredible team of of military and civilians, including two two lieutenant colonel KMB jobs that kind of helped help do that. So, uh, and we had a really talented group of teams. And I, I would say, at a personal level, one of the hardest things is actually being a senior rater for the majors. So we bring in super super talented officers that. We're given huge responsibilities based on all the stuff that was happening, and 
they were doing a great job knocking it out of the park. And it's really challenging when you have a really limited profile and you have a team of rock stars. Uh, so as a senior rater, you really got to make some challenging calls trying to assess potential. Uh, but that's probably a topic of a whole different podcast. So, yeah, you know, th that's good, sir. Uh, I, I kind of want to dig a little bit into that if you don't mind, yep. you know, because, you know, you know, how, how did you assess your, your majors? You know, how did you, um, you know, you know, kind of, kind of walk me through your, your, your philosophy on that, sir. Cause you know, senior raters, right. Or, you know, assess off of potential, but, you know, I, I've seen in the past, you know, um, you know, when I was an instructor at the career course, you know, some of the lieutenants would share, you know, some of their, you know, OER comments with me and kind of just, you know, you know, kind of give me some insight. And, and you know, I would, you know, I, I would see like that the assessments, is, a lot of it's based off of performance and not necessarily off of potential. So uh, I, I don't know if it's, you know, just, um, you know, lack of, you know, understanding of the OER or, you know, the ESPN acronym, right? You know, things yeah. like that. So I just want yeah, to so, so give me your thoughts. Yeah. Me. So the Raider, the Raider's talking about, talking about performance and the senior Raider's talking about potential. Uh, and, Ideally, you're using the leadership attributes in Success 22 to kind of kind of do those things. And what I put together was kind of a list of things that successful force managers do. And so at, at, at the major GS 12 slash 13 level, you should be a contributing member of a team, and you should be able to successfully lead and accomplish tasks. So, so that's... That's the ability to do things on time for geo SES review, coordinate across the staff, solve problems without being tasked, be a team player, uh, provide options, develop multiple courses of action, uh, be able to brief topics at the geo SES level, uh, maintaining your physical fitness and medical readiness. That's kind of the baseline. But if you're showing potential, you're next going to go to the higher level. And so if you're if you're a major and you want to show potential at the 05 level, you should be leading teams uh, and be able to manage multiple priorities to accomplish the mission the right way. So, so what is, what does that mean? So that means that you're trying to you're able to connect your work, make sure it's nested in higher level priorities. It means that you're able to kind of extend influence beyond your small group that you can kind of build and develop and lead cohesive teams. It means that you're uh, doing things that aren't necessarily being told to do, such as kind of developing, refining SOPs, work processes. It means that you're a good team player that's not only helping your organization to accomplish goals, but the other parts of the organization. So it's it's a really, really hard, hard, hard thing. There are a lot of intangibles uh, to that. But if you want to show potential, be able to do your boss's job as well as them while you're doing your job. <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah, no, yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, thanks, sir. Um, I was just wondering, sir, for your development of your team, you know, including, you know, not just the green suitors, but the civilians, I was wondering if you could give me a little bit more on your your development program, you know, kind of like what that looked like and, and, and how, how did you how did you grow your organization, grow your team, sir? Okay, so... So I am a big believer in in leader professional development, and that's kind of what I what I called it. Uh, so so what I what I did at both at both uh, locations. It's kind of hard to do if you're not if if you're an O five at the core, you could probably kind of do this. Uh, if if you're an O six, uh, you definitely should be doing this. So. Every every quarter, I tried to schedule schedule an event. Uh, so, and I made sure that it was including the government civilians because they they are critical parts of the team as force managers. They have tremendous mm -hmm. experience and insights, and they make things far more enriching than they are with a bunch of just uniform people. So, including the civilians is definitely a big thing. So, we put it on the calendar at least once a quarter. One of the things I did was asking people, I, I usually did the first one and then I would did a survey asking people what areas they would like to develop themselves. So that way you let them vote on a bunch of topics. 
let them write in. And that kind of made it more useful as people were more vested in, in the topics that they want to learn about vice what Tim O'Sullivan wanted to talk to them about. Uh, I also believed in kind of having active participants. So that's making people do something in preparation, which really fosters it beyond that, that session. And then ideally try to get out of the workspaces to an informal setting. And at the 06 level, it's really hard to do these, do these yourself. So you kind of got to assign uh, one of the branches to lead it or an action officer. Uh, because if you as a senior leader kind of put it all on you, it may or may not happen, but you got to, you got to kind of do these. So what are some, if I want to give some examples of stuff we did, would that be, be helpful? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Okay. Yes, sir. So, so when I was at the mission command seated, uh, I was responsible for the, I was concepts or concepts, capabilities, requirements, division chief, and we were responsible for the command and control or fighting function, future concepts and echelons above brigade. So think division core theater army. Uh, so a lot of the stuff in that job was very future focused. So we kind of did it that way. So we did a book review. I made everybody pick a book. They had to do a five to eight minute presentation on how, it applies to developing concepts and requirements for multi-domain operations. Had some very interesting books uh, that were selected for that. Uh, we did one on on podcasts and TED Talks, and each one of those people had to pick, pick one, and then they had to do a five- to eight-minute presentation about kind of how it applied. Uh, we did one on artificial intelligence where people had to read a couple papers, watch a couple videos, and then they had to select a movie – that featured AI and give a presentation on, on that. So we also did ones and other kind of topics that were uh, hot at the time. So we did one on the Fort Hood independent review, which was a very good thing to discuss. Uh, we did one on retirement because people wanted to. And then, uh, so those were the kind of ones we did at Michigan. I did at Mission Command C. Did. And then at Use for PAC, did one on self-development, did one on war plans, had everybody read a book related to the Indo-Pacific. We had one on supervising civilians, Army org server. We did one with the 8th Theater Sustainment Command and visited a logistics support vessel, learned about Army watercraft and the unique capabilities of 130th Engineer Brigade. Uh, so those are, some of the, those are some of the ones that we did. Yes, sir. Yeah, that's some very interesting topics. I think, you know, development programs are, are absolutely crucial. Um, you know, I, the, the, the problem is, is that, you know, we just get so busy, even though they're on the calendar, right? You know, we just get so busy and there's competing requirements. And then it's like the easiest thing to kind of, you know, just keep, keep pushing, keep pushing or just cut and cut, you know, and I, and I'm like, ex was extremely guilty of it as a, as a company commander, something that I, you know, really, really regretted. Um, but they're, you know, absolutely paramount right to you know the you know success of of uh you know current force managers you know try to you know grow them you know develop them you know it's you know it's you know it's it's paramount it's crucial. yeah they, they can also be great they're also great team building events so uh in the context if you're at a if you're at an installation that has a lot of fa50s we would invite it wasn't just the use for pack fm shop that was that was invited to these it was all the fa50s that were located on oahu that could travel and the other ones we opened up to people we do we do them on teams so so those in korea uh or jblm if they wanted to participate could could participate so uh i yeah it, it always you always get tempted to cancel it as you get close to it but i think everybody's grateful they did them after after the event uh so, yeah. yeah, yes, sir. Um, so, you know, changing topics, sir. So you, oh five, oh six, you know, even even as an oh four, but you know, as oh six, you're sitting on all these different forums, you're briefing all these general officers. You know, majority of them are combat arms. You know, former BCT maneuver commanders. Um, you know, they understand war fighting. They understand you know combat arms. Um, so I was just wondering, sir, you know, what are your thoughts on like how do we, you know, articulate force management to army senior leaders, you know, that don't understand, don't necessarily understand our language. Um, you know, how do we articulate it? How do we translate force management into a language that they understand? 
Yeah, that that's a great that's a great question. Uh, I I think the way you have to do it, and and you do have to know your audience. So it, so I have worked for several general officers that uh, had been in key jobs in new force management very well, and uh, you kind of have to approach approach them differently. Uh, but generally. Generally speaking, you need to talk in operational terms and clear, concise, and plain English. Okay, we have super complex processes with many, many time-consuming steps that aren't necessarily that interesting. Really, they want to know how to use the force management process to accomplish their priorities or their higher-level commander's priorities, depending on where where you're sitting. So what I recommend people do is kind of focus on what the inputs that your command kind of must provide and how senior leaders can help you to move to the next level. Uh, As a force manager, it's really your responsibility to do all the work required to go to the next step. Uh, You have an obligation to do that. Depending on the senior leader, they may be really interested in the details or not not super interested in the details, but you have to do quality detailed work if you actually want it to get implemented. Uh, a lot of times I've seen that people will kind of cry to their cry to army senior leaders and they'll kind of get involved at the geo level and then the next question kind of becomes, all right, where's the work to support this action that you want to change? If you don't have that action, you'll look kind of like you won't look very good within your force management community. Uh, and don't expect your kind of higher level headquarters or HQD to do the work for you, do the work for you. So, so how do you communicate? You communicate in clear and concise, plain English boss. This is what we want to do. This is how we can do it. This is the time. And this is how you can help us in the process. So that's kind of what I would, what I would say. No, those are those are good good notes or good recommendations. You know, I mean, from my limited experience, you know, I've, I've seen them, <laughs> I've seen them before. Where, uh, you know, because what we do it can be complex, um, and and our language is not always necessarily, you know, easy to understand. And so, when you use that language, um, it can you, you kind of go down rabbit holes, right? Yeah, no, no, you get into yeah. acronym acronym soup, and uh, yeah. and I. At the end of the day, we're professional staff officers as FA-50s, so so we need to kind of take the complex and make it simple to the maximum degree that we can now. You can't eliminate – and by doing that, you can get better senior leader input of what they want to do. And then we get into the process of kind of how we, how we achieve those goals, but that's, that's one thing that I would kind of emphasize. Yes, sir. Um- so, sir, and your your background, understand that you're, you know, was a you were a former PDO. I was just wondering, sir, your your time as a PDO, how did that shape you? How did that help you become a better force manager? You know, like I guess you know, specifically for you know your 06 KMB, like how how did that shape you for that? Well, I, I think one of the, I think how the PDO kind of helped that job really helped me is I got to, I had the opportunity to talk to so many different uh, FA-50s in, in that role. And it was really great to kind of get different people's individual perspectives about uh, where the career field was going, what their goals were, what they thought uh, we should improve about force management, uh, the one thing I would say was frustrating for me is I was only in that job for, for like a year. So it's really, really difficult to, to implement enduring changes uh, if you're in the job for such a short time. But I think that's kind of what, uh, what I kind of took away. It's just all the different engagements I had with all the different force managers. And I think part of it is I kind of realized the thirst and hunger for professional development across the force and how vital that is. Uh, for us to improve. I think there's a perception a lot of times that the people inside the Pentagon get all this special professional development because they're in the Pentagon. And I actually don't think that's true. So they may be 
close to a lot of high-ranking people, but it doesn't mean that there's a meaningful professional development program taking place always. Yes, sir. Um, and this kind of ties into professional development and, you know, your experiences, but where do you see, like your thoughts on where do you see force managers falling short or I guess lacking uh, in terms of like skills, you know, compared to like other staff officers and functional areas? And like, where do you see us excelling? You know, where do you see like the differences in terms of, you know, where we're falling short and, you know, where we're excelling? So, so the one area that I, Kind of, I'll talk kind of weakness first, I think. So we're bringing in super talented officers into our, our career field. So we wouldn't, we wouldn't bring them in, and I got to see this as the PDO, actually, looking at, looking at files as we were trying to, as people were trying to become FA-50. So we're bringing in very quality, proven Army officers that have been successful so far in their career. So we're bringing in talent. The one area that I kind of get concerned about is us maintaining our expertise on war fighting as we go go mm-hmm. forward. So with career field designation, just kind of due to the nature of the pyramid, we brought we, there were a lot more combat arms officers in kind of back in those days because they were pretty much pulling from the maneuver branches to kind of do career field designation. So with VTIP, we're not we're not doing that as much and that that's great because people are selecting it but maintaining your relevancy in war fighting is really important because how are we supposed to design the army of the future and how are we supposed to manage these processes and help inform senior leaders on these really difficult trades if we don't really understand how all these capabilities actually work on the ground so i think mm-hmm. for 50s uh being involved in war fighters war games and things like that are really, really valuable because you get to see how these different pieces fit together or don't fit, and there's no better place to see what gaps are than these events. So I think that's kind of one of the things that I, I think is a little bit of a weakness of us compared to some of the other other career fields. And part of that is where we're stationed, uh, where our assignments are. But that's another reason I think theater, army, and ones of ones and core assignments can be really developmental for people in that space. Uh, so what we're, what we're good at. So I would say there's two functional areas that we're kind of compared to the most. So we've got the operations research, uh, horses, FA-49s, and we've got the strategists, uh, which is the other one I think that we're kind of compared to, uh, which is a FA-59, I believe. So those two uh, functional areas, which are bigger than ours, they kind of play a really important role. And the 49s are all about analysis, and the 59s are all about strategic documents and overarching plans. So, But what I think we really excel in is delivering results as FA-50s. Mm. So we understand how the, we understand the processes to affect change in the force development, force integration, force generation – so we are the people that actually get stuff done. Uh, translating their analysis and their strategic documents into tangible actions to actually change the army at crop.mlpf. So it doesn't happen fast, but when the process is executed properly, we can deliver real warfighting capabilities to the field in in a good way. So I think I think that's where we 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 deliver. We we don't uh, while the other career fields sometimes I think uh, think don't don't do as much as it's I think that's our, our delivering results I think is what we are better at over <laughs> yeah yes sir yeah if I could you know just just comment on on all that I 100% agree that um, you know we absolutely need to understand war fighting and be able to speak war fighting um, you know we understand need to understand how we fight as an army and you know how we contribute to the to the joint fight as well um and i think um as, as force managers i think we got the best of multiple worlds and what i mean is you know we, we kind of dabble a little bit into the orso world and we kind of dabble a little bit into the strategy world because we have to understand the strategic documents you know um it starts with the strategy so you have to be familiar with that and you also have to be a good writer as you know as a force manager but then also we 
kind of dabble a little bit into data analytics and, and, you know, building, you know, products and, and, um, you know, showing, showing those products, right. You know, and being able to measure, measure certain aspects in order to drive decisions for senior leaders, which are, you know, our, our horses get into as well. Um, that being said, sir, I was just curious to know, you know, like, what are your thoughts on like the future of force management in the army? Like, how do you, how do you think it'll look, you know, differently, I don't know, five, 10 years from now, or, you know, will it be the status quo kind of stay the same? Yeah. So I, I think, I think the biggest, I think what we're going to do is going to be consistent. I think, I think the, the, the big buckets are, are going to stay the same, but I think the how is really going to change probably in the next 10 years, which we're going to transition from largely manual processes to increased automation. I mean, I remember when I was young, 50, doing a TDA crosswalk and being horrified that it was like 2010 <laughs> and, and, and we were having to do this spreadsheet that had double letters in the number of columns and it was so painful. And I think we're still doing that right now. But I really do think <laughs> yeah, yes, sir. I, I, I really do think Global Force Information Management or GIF um, is gonna have the potential to really change change how things were done. So the underpinnings for this, the data set, the Global Force Management Data Initiative. So when I was on the joint staff, we were doing the uh, assignment tables for the forces for, for the global force management implementation guidance. And that was the first year we were actually using the army org server to inform the assignment tables. Uh, and that was back in like 2015 timeframe. So we're, we're finally starting to use, use this data and it is going to be a really bumpy road as, as we kind of sunset a lot of our legacy systems, but I think moving to the future, it's really going to give decision makers better visibility on on the capabilities, readiness, availability of of our forces. And as force managers, we got to think about how we can address adjust our processes. Uh, I really think this data has the ability in the future to help us kind of develop better plans, evaluate different courses of action earlier in the stage to help us enable better senior leader decisions. So that's kind of how I think it's 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 going to evolve in the next 10 years. I think the how we do things is going to change really dramatically uh, for a better in, – in a better way. So, Yes, sir. Yeah, I'm excited for GFIM. I think there's going to be a lot of utility uh, for that for that system. Um, so, sir – Kind of going back to you know you know putting your KMB 06 KMB hat back on and, and and mentoring you know junior junior majors that are in your organization, um, you know, you, you have an iron major that's you know first assignment was at USERPAC, um, and they're coming to talk to you about what is what is next. What should be their their second assignment? Where where, where should they go next? Uh, what, are, what are your thoughts? What would you what would you tell them? You know, if I was you know Matt Bigelow and I'm coming to you, you know. And, I don't know where I should go next. Should I go to a one-on-one? Should I go to the Pentagon after spending some time at, at USERPAC? Just wondering, you know, what would you, what would your guidance be, sir? Okay, so the the first thing I, I meet when I meet with everybody, and I'm happy to sit down with any any force manager if they want to set up a time to talk with me and kind of talk career counseling. But but the first thing I ask them is is what are your goals, kind of near term, mid term, and long term. And when I say goals. I put them into kind of several bins. So first is kind of your life goals. What are you trying to get out of your life? The second one is family. And by family, I mean spouse, partner, kids, parents, siblings. Uh, what are your goals with your family? And then finally, your military career. So so you got to start out with, with those. And I think a timeline can be very, very useful, especially especially when you're talking about family. Uh, different gates. So there is usually some tension between the goals. Uh, and you shouldn't ignore it. You should kind of develop multiple paths for how to accomplish them. So I usually kind of say, hey, let's come up with with some different courses of action for you. 
Uh, so what I tell people from a professional side is you really want to try to gain experience in all three different areas of force management. So that's force development, integration, and generation. And you should strive to serve at different echelons in different locations. Because while you may be doing the same process, it looks very, very different if you're at the division level or you're at HQDA or if you're at a core or if you're at USRAPAC or you're at uh, R North. Okay. So, so serve at different locations and different echelons. And what you want to do is you want to develop a path for you to kind of experience those different areas uh, over time. Based on their goals, I kind of ask them what, where, where they're interested in serving. And so from a professional perspective, I would say as a 50, you want to go places where there's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of change going on, because you will have a great opportunity to to excel. You'll be busy, but you'll be doing good, good work for the army. Uh, but people's kind of personal family, family things come into, and that's a factor. Uh, I tell them to research the organizations, uh, they want to go to, we have the list of where every 50 is, call them, ask them. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's kind of, that's kind of how I, how I try to do it. I definitely say you got to have multiple paths, uh, because what you think is going to happen, it's not going to happen per se, but having different, different avenues can be very useful. Yes, sir. Um, you know, one, one question that, you know, I, I've, I've talked to several of my peers about is, you know, you know, the 0506 KMB, should we strive for the 0506 KMB? You know, like, so what, won't I get promoted anyways, if I, if I, if I don't, I was just wondering, like, what's, what's your thoughts in, in that area, sir? Yeah. So I have, I have lots of thoughts, uh, in that area. Uh, so my, my thought is this, so it kind of gets to the, if, if you became a force manager to make a difference in the army and you have any aspirations of being promoted to Colonel, you should go do a KMB job at the 05 level. They're supposed to be the most important and toughest jobs. You get exposed to different echelons and locations by the, by the mere element that you're probably you're only going to be there two years and i think by us having quality people in there there's good recognition by army senior leaders that hey this is a really important functional area that the army is selecting these individuals to go in these positions so those are kind of i would say i would say the whys uh the disadvantage of the kmb program is it does create uh, additional turbulence uh, in officer's timeline, you're not doing two years, at, three years at places, you're doing two, uh, and it can generate a lot of extra moves. And in the past, it wasn't required for promotion, but uh, we're trying to kind of kind of change that. So, so that's kind of the, that's kind of the, the goal. But one thing I, one point I do want to kind of make is, uh, we are army officers and having different experiences at different locations makes you relevant and makes you different from your GS counterparts. If you just wanted to stay at the same place and have the same job, why wouldn't you just be a, a government civilian? You're not adding any different, uh, different, different spice to it because we've had government civilians that have been doing the job for decades. They're probably going to outperform you in that job. And you're not really providing that unique perspective as, as a green suitor. Uh, if people are unwilling to take KMB jobs, please be really upfront about it because, and I've seen this multiple times in the past couple of years, every late declination that someone does has cascading impacts on multiple people and their families beyond just them. So I would really tell all listeners in this podcast, if you know, for family reasons, you're not going to do KMB don't like string the army along and then at the last minute say no, because you're probably impacting two or three of your peers and their families by your decision. So that's kind of the, those are kind of my thoughts on, on K. Yeah. I mean, I, I enjoyed my, I, yeah. I mean, my two probably best FA 50 assignments were my two K and B assignments. So. 
yeah, yes, sir. No, those are that. Those are those are great points. Um, I I think you know from from previous conversations that I've had. Um, I think you know some some of us may get uh, a little too comfortable, right? Like if you grew up in force structure, you get you know really comfortable in force structure, and it can be kind of scary if you you know you you. you you go into integration and generation and you don't have those experiences. Like you didn't, you never done GFM. You don't really know the equipment side or the ons, the on side, um, you know, but you're, you're a rock star at, at, at structure. Um, so I think, you know, that can, you know, th- those can change, you know, alter, you know, you know, decisions in, in that area. Um, and I think for like the one of one to, to tie, you know, go back to the one of one assignments, I think there's some, yeah you know, concerns out there about, well, you know, am I going to be used for cannon fodder? You know, I, I don't necessarily want to do war fighters or be a battle captain or battle major somewhere, you know, things like that, you know, used for like staff duty, you know, I think there's, you know, there's some concerns out there because there's people that, you know, legitimately V tip changed over to do something completely different, try to get away from like the tactical, you know, area and move a little bit more into like the strategic area because like, that's their, that's their jam. But uh, yeah. Just, yeah. No, I, I no, can, no, I can under, uh, understand that. Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah. Wow. We, so I, I can talk one-on-one if yeah, you want. Yes, sir. So, yes, so, uh, so one-on-one assignment. So battle captain, I actually was the G3 ops battle captain in the 101st. <laughs> Uh, when I was a young captain prior to becoming a 50 and it was very, actually very fortuitous for my later work doing echelons above brigade stuff. And I learned a lot, uh, in that job, but for, for one-on-one. So I did a one-on-one in asymmetric warfare group. So I was in that job for two and a half years. That's the longest job I've had in the army in my 26 year career, <laughs> two and a half years. Wow. So, uh, I loved it. Uh, I had people that warned me, don't go there. You're not an operator. You're not going to get a good evaluation and all this stuff. And, uh, it turned out all right for me. So I had a unique skill set. you're going to have this as a 50. So you, you have a unique skill set that other people on the staff don't have. Most of the operational officers that, that are on the staff detest being at the two-star level staff. All they want to do is get down to their battalion level so they can be an S3, an XO, a SPO, or something like that. So you have a tremendous advantage in that space because you have unique skills and you can demonstrate your value no matter what, no matter what task is assigned. So I, I would tell everybody like we are assessing very talented people in the functional area. Be confident in your abilities. You've already proven that you can be a successful army officer. You can be a successful army officer with additional skills, tackling problems, whatever they may be. And I do get frustrated when people say, oh, I'm not doing FA-50 work because FA-50 work is simply staff work. So uh, don't don't try to like put some holiness in, in FA-50 work over basic staff work that has to be done. If, if you're enthusiastically and aggressively doing work that supports higher priorities and you're having an impact, I think you will do just fine on your evaluations. Awesome, sir. No, I really appreciate that. Um, you know, this entire podcast, we've covered a lot of, a lot of ground, you know, we've talked career management, we've talked like personal development, we've talked, you know, your background and your experiences throughout uh, being a force manager, sir, you know, it's just really great to get an 06 perspective. Um, that being said, sir, I want to transition to the, to the fun questions. Um, and, start, you know, okay. doing the conclusion. And these fun questions are the questions that I ask every guest, regardless, you know, of the, of the topic. And so I'll kick it off, sir, with, you know, what is your all-time favorite book? Wow. So that's a, that's a hard, that's a hard yeah. one. Uh, I, I really enjoy, enjoy reading books. Uh, but since this is a force management podcast, I have to give a force management book and I have a list of force management books, so I'm not going to list them all. The, but I will go with the book that I gave copies to to everyone at User Pack. And so there's probably some people groaning <laughs> as I say this that are listening to this podcast. So Guardians of Empire, the U.S. Army in the Pacific, 1902 to 1940. 
written by Brian McAllister Lynn, published back in 1997. And what this is, a, it's a detailed history of the U.S. Army in the Hawaii and the Philippines coming out of the Spanish-American War. The U.S. kind of had an empire in terms of the book. And they knew that there was a rising Japanese threat. Uh, and this describes kind of challenges against a rising threat in the Pacific before Pearl Harbor. So it, what Pearl Harbor, everyone acts like it was a surprise, but the threat was known and coming for a long time. So it, it, it talks about rising near pier and the Army's response, problems with end strength, modernization, readiness over time, having plans that are totally out of balance with the resources available, transitioning from stability ops, to large-scale combat, forward station versus rotational units, inter-service rivalry, competing theaters, uh, all all kinds of things like that are really really highlighted in this book. It's it's an academic book, so it's not like a it's not a page turner like Ghost, uh-huh. but uh, but I think it I think it's a really interesting book to read from a force management lens. So awesome, sir! No, I appreciate that. I'm a big reader, so you know it's you know. Part of the reason why I ask the question every time my reading list just keeps growing and growing and growing. And then after I ask the question, I'm like, why did I even ask that? Cause my, my list is just getting too ridiculously long. Um, yeah. I, I'm a, I'm a big believer in like Goodreads and I just like keep throwing books on my little like list in Goodreads. Uh, and that way I kind of keep track of all the stuff I want to read and that I've already yeah. read. So yeah. Yes, um, okay. Next question, sir. You know, this is just, I'm, I'm, I'm a futurist and I find, you know, this, this stuff is fascinating, you know, changes in the character war, you know, that, that area. So what emerging or, you know, future capability technology worries you the most? Yeah. As, as our army is, as our, I'd say as the joint force is getting smaller and smaller, uh, the integration of our capabilities across the joint force becomes so vital. We don't have the mass that we that we've had in the past. So, so the thing that worries me the most is our ability to to operate effectively in a disrupted, disconnected, intermediate or low bandwidth environment. Detail is the term, kind of kind of for that the acronym. So that's what I actually kind of worry about is how do we how do we as a joint force get after that? And JADC two is one of the uh, big kind of joint issues, but that's kind of, that's my, my concern technology wise. Gotcha. All right. Thanks, sir. I know this entire podcast, right. You know, we've talked advice, you know, recommendations on, you know, how to grow and, and develop as a, as a force manager, but uh, you know, I was just wondering, sir, you know, is there any, any other advice, any words of wisdom that comes to mind for a force managers, you know, and our staff officers, anything else, sir? Yeah, I, I kind of two points. The first one is physically take care of yourselves. So if if you have an injury, uh, get it addressed. Uh, develop a fitness plan that works for you and follow it. Uh, fitness is not just a requirement uh, for a job, and it's not just about meeting, kind of passing the fitness test and doing height weight. Uh, for me, it's really effective way to relieve stress. It gives a mental break and it helps you work more effectively. Uh, and I've seen quite a few FA50s go on this slippery slope where they they slowly, their fitness declines over time. They get an injury and it's this downward spiral and then it catches up with them on a on a meeting an Army standard. And if you don't meet an Army standard, it can kind of end your, your prospects for uh, promotion or future service. So... Uh, I would say it's really important to take care of yourself physically, develop a plan that works for you and follow it. Uh, so that's a real, real important thing that you probably won't hear from many FA fifties. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, and then I, I guess the, the final kind of thing I would also say is, is talk about balance. So uh, you got to maintain balance in your life. Uh, so spend quality time, time with your family Take care. I already talked about physical, but your mental, spiritual needs. Uh, if if you don't have balance, you're not going to be able to do this over the long haul. And I feel like if if you're if you're in an unhappy place, it's really hard to be be effective uh, at work, uh, and you might not be the funnest person to be around. So so maintaining balance uh, is, is is really 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 critical.
All right, thanks for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes of violent discussions with senior force managers and subject matter experts on strategic readiness, the defense industrial base, and the all-volunteer force.